Let's pray over the word this morning. We'll just get our hearts ready to receive what God has for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you're saying to the church. We thank you for raising the church up, washing us with the water of the word and raising us up. We posture, we position our hearts to hear from you, to receive from you today, to receive instruction from you and encouragement in the word today. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen, amen. Uh, Ephesians 6, I want to go there. I just feel like the, the hour is urgent, and, uh, and maybe there's a special urgency on the hour uh, that we are sober, that we are vigilant. You know, First Peter 5 says that we are to be sober and vigilant for the sake of prayer. For our adversary uh, goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And, and I was thinking about this, uh, last week I introduced you to the idea of microcosm and macrocosm and how, how we can learn from how things are working in culture and in the world affairs and in the nation and the nations by thinking about our own lives, thinking about how things work in a microcosm. And uh, I want to read to you, just, just starting, I didn't put it in your scriptures, so you're going to not have it, but I wanted, my mind was uh, taken in thinking about this morning's message. Uh, this one was just thrown in, and a few scriptures will be just thrown into my, my heart maybe as we go along. Out of Ephesians chapter 6, where it says to be strong, to stand strong uh, uh, in the wicked day, or in the evil day. And it's uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. So, you know, what, what was brought to my mind is that not every day is the same. Not every day is the same. Not every day contains the same evil. Uh, not every day is an opportunity for the enemy's advancement. So it says of Jesus that after fasting for 40 days, he hungered. He was hungry. This created a vulnerability. Vulnerabilities in us create an opportunity for the enemy. Vulnerabilities in culture also create an opportunity for the enemy. Satan attaches himself to vulnerabilities. Now, we could argue that maybe he created the coronavirus, but if he didn't create the coronavirus, and we know that he is the author of sickness and disease. But what we do know for sure is that he's attached himself to it. He's attached himself to it with argument, with thought, with fear. And now he's attaching himself to it with other elements, other arguments that are actually seeking to seize cultures, nations, influence in and over people. And so we want to see, we want to be aware and the word says, and, and you know the passage, Ephesians chapter 6, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist firm or stand firm against the schemes of the devil. But, but I like this. I want to draw your attention to this, that, that what's happening right now and what's, what's been happening, what's been going on to a degree 
in the cultures, in the world, in the world's systems, is that the enemy has attached himself. And I really believe uh, as well, uh, and I was thinking this morning, it hit me this morning, we would be foolish. We would be foolish to think that if God was prophesying a revival in the earth and a one billion soul harvest, we would be foolish to be thinking that Satan wasn't prophesying something as well. So even as the word has come, and we know the parable of the sower, Jesus said, when the word comes, persecution becomes because of the word. Persecution comes. Can you hang on to that word? Can you, can you wrestle with that word? Can you endure through opposition with that word? Psalm 105, the word tested, the word tested Joseph. It tested. The word to him tested his makeup. It tested, will you hang on to the word? Will you, will you believe the word? Will you hold fast to the word? And these are part of the elements, I believe, that's happening right now in the world, in our culture, in the United States of America. Part of what's going on is that Satan had a prophetic word too, though we might call it a pathetic word, right? But Satan had a prophetic word as well. His word is to cause chaos. His word is to bring disorder. His word is to throw the nations into turmoil. His word is to bring the nations to a position of weakness. His word is to elevate an agenda that closes down freedoms, that shuts down wealth creation, that harms humanity, that empowers those who have unclean agendas. He has a word of revival as well. And which revival are we going to hold fast to? Which revival are we going to fight for? And the coronavirus has opened up a vulnerability in cultures, a vulnerability in humanity, a vulnerability. And this is where Satan comes to attach himself. He attaches himself to vulnerabilities. He attaches himself to pain, to death. He attaches himself to loss, to trauma. And he brings an agenda. He brings a message. And will we listen to that message or we will listen to the message of the Lord? Will we listen to the word of the Lord in this season? And will we prevail? For today, I was drawn back to Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. And today, I want to title the message, No Compromise. No Compromise. Drawn back to Revelation 12, 11, but actually starting at verse 9, because I believe there's a parallel here to what's happening right now, happening in culture, and even a word over the church, a word over the church, a word over you, a word over the church. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil, and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, this Revelation 12 is about a war in heaven, and without getting deep theologically and without getting into a place of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, a theological debate, what's happening here is that, that he's showing us a picture of the enemy coming to harm, to devour, to hurt, 
to deceive not only the world, not only the earth, but the saints. And this is a picture of what happened when there was a war in heaven, when Jesus ascended to the throne and he was raised up to the right hand of Father and he came in his perfect humanity as the high priest to represent us. There was a war in heaven, Satan is cast down. And then we heard this saying, or he heard this, verse 10. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before God day and night and they overcame him, and this is what I want to focus on, and they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony and they did not love even love their life even when faced with death. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Now, I want you to see this. I, I think it's interesting that coming into Passover, and as we thought about this pandemic, and as we thought about what was happening, and I don't know that it was so much that we thought, but actually we prayed that God was moving all across the world to stir up a viewpoint that this Passover season would be an actual Passover. We just learned of this last week that Mike Bickle and Lou Ingalls in their network for Passover and for the Seder, for the Passover, they had 350 devices online 350,000 devices online worldwide. They believe a million people participated with them in a global Passover. This was happening all over the globe. What was happening? God was moving us in a fulfillment of how we overcome Satan. How do we overcome darkness? How do we overcome the enemy? How do we overcome the onslaught and the arguments of the enemy against truth and against the glory of our God, the goodness of our God. Number one, the blood of the lamb. So people have been moved all across the planet. We had a global Passover. We believed and were believing that God was actually putting to flight our enemies, that he was subduing the gods of Egypt, that he was delivering us from this pestilence, this plague. And, and this is part of what God was leading us to do. And that led us into what's being called a communion revival. There are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Christians across the planet right now as, as, it, as if we were counting the Omer with the Hebrew people that we are, we are coming to the Lord in communion every single day. From now until Pentecost, every single day, the seven weeks... The 49 days, we are gathering in communion every day, commemorating the blood, commemorating the blood. We overcome by the blood of the lamb. We overcome by the sacrifice of Jesus. We overcome by the victory of Jesus. But then he goes on, and he leads us into this next portion. And he says also that we overcome through the word of our testimony. And I was trying to encourage you last week, and I'll encourage you again today, that this is the decade of your word. This is the decade 
of the mouth, that the symbol we've entered into the decade 5780, and the decade of 5780 is represented in the Hebrew numerical system by the alphabet as there are numbers that correspond with letters. 80 is represented by the letter pay. Pay, the symbol for pay is the symbol of the mouth. We're coming in right now to a decade of speaking the word, a decade of prophetic utterance, a decade of declaring the word, a decade of declaring the truth, a decade where we are actually putting into practice the very thing that John saw, that the enemies come down to the earth. Woe to you that are in the earth. The enemies come down to the earth with great wrath, knowing that he has a short time. And right now there's a vulnerability. There's been a vulnerability created through the coronavirus. A vulnerability where we, as as humanity, as nations, as leaders, as Christians, that we would listen to the word of the demonic realm. That we would listen to the arguments of the demonic realm. The demonic realm has a mouth with a great boast. The demonic realm has a a, a mouth with arguments and, and with opinions and with ideas. And pervasively, pervasively, this is being spread across the globe and spread into every culture. But the church has an ear to another voice. The church has an eye to another word. The church is in tune to another spirit. And this is the decade, the decade of the mouth, where we are called upon to bring the word of our testimony. And the word of our testimony, I I was trying to share this with you. I'm actually distraught over the silence of Christians in social media. I truly believe that, that if you would read less and post more, if you would see that social media is your platform, it's your pulpit, it is your opportunity to voice truth, not to read through all the garbage. If you would read less, if you would, if you would scan less, if you would, it's almost like voyeurism. You know, we're, we're going through all the social media and we're looking for this and we're looking for that and we're reading about this and we're reading about that and we're, we're wasting hours upon hours upon hours in our social media platforms when we should be using our social media platform to bear witness to the glory of God, to testify how he heals, to testify how he's good, to testify what it is to live with integrity, what it is to know his word, what it is to be led by the spirit, what truth is in the midst of all of these lies. What is truth in the midst of all of these lies? It's amazing how silent the church is. It's amazing. It's an indictment to how silent the church is. And my point to us last week, and again today, I want to bring this to us. My, my point uh, 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 that, that I want to bring to you out of the word of your testimony is not the testimony that you were saved. It's not the testimony that you are saved. It's the testimony of the goodness of God. You see, Romans 1.18 tells us that godless men suppress the truth. Godless men suppress the truth. 
But the Bible says that we are to speak the truth, that we are to proclaim the truth, that we are to make the truth of our God known. And that's going to put us juxtaposed to culture. That's going to put us in a crazy spot. When you are making the truth known, it's going to put you in a position where you may not be so popular. When you are... When you are on the work site, when you're, when you're out in culture, when you're interacting with those around you, will you ignore the truth or will you make the truth known? I believe it was Edmund Burke who is known for saying something. At least he's been accredited with something, a statement. The only thing necessary for evil for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Let's not, let's not be a part of Romans 1.18 accidentally, suppressing the truth just because we refuse to speak the truth. Let's, let's embrace the truth with all of our hearts. And this is where, this is where I, I, I believe as well, the last part of Romans 12, 18 fits in. See, we are called, we are called to declare the word of truth, even to wash culture. What, what is it? What, 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 I was thinking of Ephesians chapter 5, 25, and realizing the power of our words, the power of your words or the power of your contradiction. There's even a passage in Proverbs. I wonder if I have it here. Proverbs 18, I believe it is. And it's just a great, what a great word. What in the world do I have that? Where's that one? Proverbs 18, it says, you know, one man's argument appears to be right until another one steps forward and also speaks another one man's argument. One, one man's argument seems right until another steps forward and speaks. Our words are so powerful. They have the ability, even if they are words that create conflict, they have the ability to wash the hearer. Ephesians 5, 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Our words, the word about our God, the word of truth, the word of wisdom, the word of how to live, the word of how to think, the testimony that we carry the testimony that we carry, interjecting the testimony of Jesus into culture, having the word of testimony. See, if the church is silent, if the church is quiet, if the church is not posting, if the church is retreated, if the church doesn't want conflict, if the church doesn't bring the truth, if the church doesn't have a better idea, then the one that has stepped forward with the argument, they appear to be right. Proverbs 18, they're going to appear to be right until another steps forward and has the word of truth in their mouth, has a higher wisdom in their mouth. There is, James chapter 3 says, a wisdom from above and there is a wisdom from beneath. And of the wisdom from beneath, he says, the wisdom from beneath 
is earthy. It's related to the sense realm. It's sensual. It's earthy. It's sensual. And he, and he says that it's also related to envy, jealousy, and bitterness. And we're going to find that out in a moment. It's related. Compromise with truth is related to envy, jealousy, bitterness. In other words, sickness of soul will lead us on a path of compromising truth. Revelation twelve eleven. They loved not their life even unto the death. This is the third, this is the third equation of this passage. They loved not their life even unto death. You know, you have to give up your life. You have to give up your life. Even if you're going to be that husband we just read of in Ephesians 5, you have to give up your life that you would wash another with the word from above, that you would be used of God. They loved not their life even unto the death. I was reading this week of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, of how he was used of God in Germany, how he was used of God to oppose the Nazi regime, how he was used of God, how he was convicted of soul, how, he's, how he was one of the few, though his life was ended, Though he was executed, though he was publicly hung, just 21 days before Hitler committed suicide, he died. He gave his life. He stood for truth. Are we willing to love not our life even unto the death? This is one of the most challenging aspects of the Christian life. That we're willing to defend the truth. That we're willing to live like dead people. That we that we will that we will not compromise for any reason. See, compromise of truth flows out of a a a a, a, a life of protecting our life, an unwillingness to live like a dead person. This is what God has called us to. You know, the scripture is all about this, and yet I believe it's one of the, 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 the most misunderstood portions of living the Christian life is that we are not called to live for us. I'm not called to live for me. The kingly anointing on my life is that I'm called to live for him. I'm called to live for the King of Kings. I'm called to be an ambassador of the King of Kings. And, and if we don't take this third portion of Revelation 12:11 and incorporate it into our life, incorporate it into our soul, incorporate it into the church, then we will not see the enemy put underfoot. We will not see the victory God has ordained for us. We will end up compromising the truth, retreating from the truth. This will, th this, this loving not our life even to death creates a liberty, a liberty to live fully as Jesus. Philippians 1.21. Here's what Paul said, Philippians 1.21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. It's Christ through me. Paul had this down. Galatians 2 and 20. 
Paul had this down. He understood this. This is something that, that we're called to, that he who has given his life for us, he's calling us now to give our lives for him. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself up for me. You know, in the callings of God, in the anointings of God, in the kingly anointing that we've been called to, it's an anointing that embraces his life. It's an anointing that embraces his calling. It's an anointing that is a self-sacrificing anointing. Jesus said, if you retain your life, you hold on to your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will find life. And this is where even as believers, we have to count that the life we have with him is greater than the life we have here. I remember growing up in a very rapture-focused church, uh, a very Jesus-is-coming-back-any-moment church. And I remember, at the same time, uh, the love for life. The love for life. Loving this life. Loving this life more than loving that life. Counting this life as more precious than a life with him. As precious. So I remember, you know, praying that the rapture wouldn't come. Uh, that Jesus wouldn't come back in the rapture. Uh, until I got my driver's license. I just wanted to drive a car. I just wanted to drive. You know, what, what is it, what is it that we count so precious about this life that we love so much about this life? Is it, is it our, our lifestyle? Is it our freedom? Uh, is, it, is it our economic status? Uh, is it the things we possess? Is it the shiny things that we own? Is it the things we enjoy? Is it the next meal? Is it the food? Is it the relationships we share? What is it that we cherish so much in this life that we count it higher, that we count it richer than the life to come? Because it's those very things that will keep us from fully giving ourselves over to follow Jesus every moment of every day. See, the calling to follow Jesus is not a 10% calling. It's not a tithe the calling to follow Jesus to the death, and I'm preaching to me right now as much as I'm preaching to you, the calling to follow Jesus into death is the calling moment by moment. It's a 24-7 calling, a 24-7 calling that we do what Romans chapter 12 tells us to do, that we take ourselves to the altar of sacrifice. This is our acceptable worship, that we present our bodies a living sacrifice holy and acceptable, for this is our reasonable act of worship, that we completely give of ourselves to him. What is his desire? What is his will? Father, not my will, but yours be done. This is what he's calling us to. And this is a life that will lead you to speak the truth, to unashamedly and to boldly declare his goodness. 
to brag on him, to testify of him, to tell of his goodness, to tell of his wisdom, to amplify and to spread. And this is what, this is what the world needs right now. Are we confused about our calling? Is our calling to, to be so loving and kind and gentle that somehow we could woo people into Christianity? Is our, is our, is our calling to be so unoffensive uh, with our language that somehow they're attracted to God? Is our calling to diminish or remove the issue of sin and wrath and separation from God is so that people feel comfortable around us and, and comfortable around God? Is our, is our calling to, to, be, to be sweet and, and never uh, offensive, or is our calling to be salt and light in culture? Is our calling to be truth? Is it more loving to yell a little bit, to raise your voice when your friend is about to drive their car over a cliff, or is it more loving is it more loving to, to just gently uh, remind them to look forward through the windshield? What do you think is more loving? Sometimes I really think that, that, that we've found ourselves in a compromised position with the truth. We, we're, we're trying to be nice Christians, and we're trying to win people to the Lord with platitudes and espresso machines, and those things that are fancy, rather than with the truth and with the power of God. The power of God. And God's calling us in this season, this could be an entire decade of you not only prophesying, we've encouraged you to do that time and time again, we'll continue to encourage you to do that. I wanted to do that today. I wanted to take you to... Mark 11, 14 today, I wanted to take you there where Jesus cursed the fig tree. I wanted to take you to that place in Scripture where he cursed the fig tree because I, I believe this is part of our role, that as kingly ones, we actually fashion worlds with our words. We actually shift atmospheres with our words. As kingly ones, we change the future with our words. As kingly ones, we rule with our words. We demonstrate the authority of Jesus with our words. We advance his government and his kingdom with our words. As kingly ones, this is what we do. But we don't just curse the darkness. We don't just confront the enemy. We don't just curse it at the roots. We don't, just, we don't just use the authority of Jesus in that way. We're also called to bear witness to the truth, the truth from above, the witness from, uh, uh, the wisdom from above, even if that means putting our own selves at risk, putting our lives at risk, putting our position at risk. Are we willing to be, are we ready to be the Dietrich Bonhoeffers of today? I want to go to 1 Samuel 15. I want to talk to you a little bit about Samuel. I was reminded of Samuel this week. First of all, we find this, this little passage, uh, 1 Samuel 9, I believe it's 21. You know, uh, 
we find this little passage about Saul. Saul is the one who's going to be anointed as king. Saul is the choice for king over Israel. The people of Israel have been crying out for a king, and, and so Saul is the one that will be anointed and, and chosen. And so uh, he's led to Samuel. And as he's led to Samuel, uh, Samuel ministers prophetically over him. Uh, he declares uh, that he would be king over him. And, and uh, there's this whole process of anointing and declaration. He even tells him that the anointing, the same kind of anointing that modern-day Pentecostal believers enjoy would come upon him. Verse, uh, I don't have the verse for that, but this whole story starts in 1 Samuel chapter 9. But he says to him, you know, you're going to go up to the hill. You're going to go up to the hill where the prophets are prophesying. The anointing is going to come upon you. You're going to prophesy with the prophets. You're going to be changed into a different man. But this is, Samuel, this is Saul's reply. Saul replies in 1 Samuel chapter 9, am I not a Benjamite? of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family, the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak to me in this way? Now this, this was a revelation. This, I, I love it how scripture is so true to reality, and that scripture will let us into the true insights of what's happening. And here, Saul reveals the vulnerability of his heart, the vulnerability of his soul, that he saw himself even though God saw him great, even though the people saw him as great, even though he was qualified on the outside, even though he had shown himself to be a warrior, and even though he was head and shoulders over Israel. It's like maybe the way God sees the church today. The church is well able. The church is strong. The church is head and shoulders. The church is, is handsome in appearance. You know, the church, the church has got this. The church has got this. But he said, am I not a Benjamite? Am I not of the smallest of the tribes? Is not my family the least of those? Why would you, why would you, why would you, why would you speak to me this way? Why would you call me to this? Why would you choose me to this? And this revelation of weakness and vulnerability in his own heart was the undoing of him in chapter 15. Just six chapters later, just six chapters later, this was the undoing of him because when God would give him instruction, he would vacillate if he should follow God and follow his word or if he should follow the people and the voice of the people. Should I follow God and what God is calling me to do? Should I follow what God's word is? Should I follow the wisdom from above? Should I follow the voice of the prophet? Or should I follow the voice of the people? And there came a time where he was to kill, he was to slaughter, he was to overcome the enemies of Israel. He was to put to death Agag, the king of the enemies. And there came a time when he was also to put to death and to sacrifice all that pertained to those people, and he disobeyed. And so Samuel comes to him, the prophet comes to him, and he confronts him with the disobedience. 
And, and first he denies the disobedience. No, no, I obeyed. I, I did what you told me to do. I, I did what God told me to do. God said, go on this mission, and I, and I went on the mission. And I'm reminded of compromises that we make. I, I'm reminded of compromise. The Old Testament is so full of compromise, but God has not called us to that. Jeroboam makes a compromise with the people of God just after he's anointed. He's barely anointed, and he makes a compromise because he's afraid the people will go to Jerusalem and to worship with Rehoboam. This is when the kingdom was divided. And so he sets up altars, false altars. He has graven images carved, and he tells the people, this is your God. And you know what? The people followed. The people followed. I saw posted this week on Facebook several times the, the humorous, the humorous denotation that we're like sheep. We're like sheep. Jesus said this over us, that we're like sheep. People are like sheep. They will follow. But if you have the kingly anointing, see, Saul had the kingly anointing on his life. And he was meant not for compromise, but he was meant for truth. He was meant to stay steady. In the day of testing, he was meant to follow fully the word of the Lord. And this is what came to him in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. He finally admits it. I have indeed transgressed the command, the word of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Church, listen to me. The fear of the people can pull you off of the word of the Lord. The fear of the people will cause you to not fulfill the latter portion of our verse this morning, the formula for overcoming. God has given the church a formula for overcoming Satan. The formula is the blood of the lamb. This is in the formula. The word of our testimony making known his goodness, not suppressing the truth, bragging on God, bringing the wisdom from above to bear into culture because it is salt and light, and loving not their lives unto the death. If, 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 we, if we fear the people, what, what this was for Saul, this was essentially loving his life. Loving his position, loving his fame, loving the accolades, loving what he had, wanting to retain, wanting to hang on, thinking that if he cooperated with the people, if he cooperated with the word of the people, that would be, that would be the way to retain his life. That would be the way to hold on to life. But Jesus has made it clear that our lives are not our own. We've been redeemed. We've been bought with a price. Our lives are not our own. We don't live for ourselves. Jesus made it clear. If a man would hang on to his life, he will lose it. 
If you love all that you have here above the word, if we as a people love our freedoms and our liberties and our blessings and our stuff and our things and our lifestyle, if we love it more than we love him, then we love being with him, then we love what we have in him then we will hang on to this and we will lose it. But if we love him more, if we love him greater, if we love what we have in him and who we are in him, if we love the life to come more than the life we have, if we value the life to come more than the life that we have, then we will, then we will gladly die for him. We will gladly die for him. And that's what he's calling us to. He's calling us out of compromise and he's calling us into a place of speaking the truth. And we can only speak the truth. We can only be the salt and the light that we're called to be in culture. We can only be the salt and the light that we're called to be against demonic arguments. Remember 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, the weapons of our warfare are mighty in God to the pulling down of strongholds, taking captive every argument, taking captive every argument, every imagination, every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Proverbs 24, if you do nothing in a difficult time, your strength is limited. Rescue those who are being taken off to death. Save those who are stumbling toward the slaughter. If you say we didn't know about this, won't he who weighs the heart consider it? Won't he who protects your life know of it? Won't he repay a person according to his work? Church, we're called to a greater life. We're called to a greater life. We are called right now in this moment when Satan is raging against culture, cultures, nations, and peoples. We're called to a war. We're called to a war. And to engage the war fully, we embrace the victory that's been wrought by the blood of the Lamb. And then we add to it the word of our testimony. And we just say even now, that Christians are rising up. Christians are no longer lazy concerning the word of their testimony. Christians are no longer lazy. This is a new season. This is a new decade. This is a new season. This is a new calling and a new place. God is calling us to fill our heart with truth, to arm ourselves with truth, to arm ourselves with the wisdom from above and to fill our mouth with the wisdom from above. And even, even to risk our own lives, to risk our own welfare, to risk our own position. See, there's, an, there's, a, there's a calling of urgency upon the hour. There's an urgency upon the hour. And there's some mindsets that we could take, and you're going to run into every mindset out there. God's got this. It's no big deal. Oh, God is sovereign. Uh, he's in the midst of all of this. God's sovereign. We don't have to worry about this stuff. Uh, there's some different mindsets. Oh, oh, this is this is the Antichrist rising up. This is the end times. Uh, we were told of this. It's all going to come to pass. Nothing we can do about it anyway. There's no sense in polishing brass on a sinking ship. There, there's all sorts of different mindsets you could have, but none of those, I will tell you, are the mindset that God wants you to have. 
the mindset that God wants you to have is you're in a divine partnership with him. He's calling you to embrace Revelation 12:11 as if it's real for today. That you would apply the blood of the lamb. That you would embrace the declaration of your testimony. And that you would fill your mouth with prophetic utterance. That you would pray like you've never prayed. And that you would love not your life, your lifestyle, your lifestyle, the goodness about your life, that you would love not your life to death. That you would even now count yourself as dead and that you would sacrifice yourself as one who doesn't have a life to retain. I want to pray with you today. We're going to take the elements of communion in just a moment. And I'm going to pray with you. I want you to get your elements ready, if you would. I'm going to get mine opened up here. And get mine ready. In the midst of all of this, God has goodness for you. There's actually a life to be gained in a life lost. And in the midst of this, God wants you to know that he has goodness for you, that he wants to lead you in a path of goodness, and I believe he wants to advance the righteous. He wants to protect the righteous, advance the righteous, those that love him, those that call upon him. In Romans chapter 10, he says, no one who calls upon him will be disappointed. God has protection for us. In 1 Thessalonians 4, it says he has not destined us for wrath, but for salvation. That's your destiny. If you're looking to God, if you're believing in him, if you're receiving Jesus as your forgiveness, as your healing, as your restoration, as your deliverer, as your salvation, then you will not be disappointed. Romans chapter 10. Verses 8, 9, and 10 say that if we believe in our heart, Jesus is Lord, that he is supreme, that he represents us, that he's gone to the Father to present the sacrifice of his blood on our behalf. If we'll believe that in our heart and confess him with our mouth, if we'll acknowledge him with our mouth, we'll come into a covenant relationship with him. He'll bring us into God's family and we'll be delivered from the wrath to come. God's not ordained us for wrath. He's ordained us for salvation. The word salvation is sozo in the Greek. God has ordained us for that which is good. To bring us out of bondage, to bring us out of the bondage of sin, and to bring us into the promise of God's goodness. God showing us his glory. I want to pray over you this morning, and I want to pray that your eyes will be opened to his goodness. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says, the kindness of God will draw us to repentance. Repentance is not just turning away from sin, but it's having a right mind about God. If we can see the goodness that God's ordained for us, that God is the one who's ordained good for you, and if we can see it, if your eyes would be open this morning to see that if you would turn to God, not in compromise, but in a full devotion, if you would turn to God in a sacrifice of yourself, 
and saying, I don't want to live for me anymore. It's gotten me nowhere anyway. I don't want to hang on to my life anymore. I'm going to lose it if I do. I want to live for him and I want to allow him to lead me. Living for him is allowing him to lead you and taking the risk that he's leading you in the life. He's leading you in the life. Let's take the bread together this morning and I want to lead you in a prayer as we do. Father, I want to thank you for your son. I want to thank you that he, lay, he laid his life down on my behalf. That the sacrifice that he made was for me. He didn't deserve the death that he endured, but he did so on my behalf. And Father, I receive him right now as my life. I receive him as forgiveness. I receive him as redemption. I receive him as, as one who's purchased me and given me life. I welcome the life of Jesus to course through my veins, to flow through me, to come alive on the inside, and to be the inner compass guiding me, directing me, leading me. In Jesus' name, let's take the bread together. Good are you, God. Good are you, God. Show us your goodness, Lord. Thank you for what you've done, Let's thank him for the cup. Jesus, we thank you that you sacrificed. You wrestled in the garden even as we wrestle. You said, if there's another way, let it pass from me. But then you concluded, not my will, but thine be done. Let us embrace the not my will, but thine be done life. We choose that life right now. Even as you gave up yourself for us, we choose that life now. Not to live for ourselves, but to live for you. And even as you gave up yourself for us, we say yes. Yes, we live as those who've already passed from death into life, resurrection life, the life of Christ, the life of the risen one. We choose to live by the leading of your spirit in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. God bless you, church. We love you. Let's worship together as we close.